Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Help us, dear God, to judge one another by our clothing. In Jesus' name, amen. So I can see what you're all wearing tonight. You all look comfortable, very summery. I'm wondering if you have uh, one outfit that makes you feel great about yourself. I don't. Uh, I've really tried, but it's just not working for me. Uh, One of the fringe benefits of being a minister in our tradition is they kind of pick your outfit for you, so you don't have to be creative, which is nice for me. But uh, you, you may have clothes tonight that fit well or fit loosely, or maybe you've um, gained weight, but your clothes have not realized that. Or maybe you know, you've lost a lot of weight and they're too loose. Maybe you buy clothes from Target. Maybe you um, buy clothes from Gucci and you want everybody to know it, or you're humble, so you don't. Um, but uh, you've heard the cliche, the clothes make the man, right? The clothes make the man. I actually think that's eternally true. It's eternally true, but not in the way that it's commonly understood. But clothes do communicate uh, various things about us. The novelist uh, Alison Laurie uh, once uh, wrote about the very sub- that very subject in, uh, using these words. For thousands of years, human beings have communicated with one another first in the language of dress. Long before I am near enough to speak to you, you announce your gender, age, and class to me through what you wear and very possibly give me important information or misinformation as to your occupation, origin, personality, opinions, tastes, desires, and current mood. By the time we meet and converse, we have already spoken to each other in an older and more universal tongue. Well, that concept that clothes send a message is part of this parable uh, that Jesus uh, offers toward the end of his life. And you may know that toward the end of Jesus' earthly life, uh, he starts telling stories that are more grim and dismal and accusatory. And uh, this is one of those stories, and it's very much like an allegory. Whenever you hear people tell you parables are not allegories, I don't think they've ever read parables or allegories. Parables are almost always allegorical. There are various symbolic characters in Jesus' story. The king is clearly God. The son is clearly Jesus. The servants are most likely Old Testament prophets and sages calling Israel back to God. And those who spurned the invitations are probably Israel's leaders. But uh, this uh, parable is, is very important for us to consider tonight, especially regarding the subject of clothing. So let me stroll through the three sections of this parable and focus on the last portion. The three sections are the announcement, then the audience, and then the attire. The announcement, the audience, and the attire. We'll start with the announcement, which is in verses 1 and 2. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. This uh, scene is, of course, pregnant with meaning. You have a royal wedding, a royal wedding. And those of you who are Anglophiles followed uh, with great interest 
the the weddings of uh, Harry and um, Meghan, or the wedding of um, who are the other two? Why can't I think of them? The other two. Yeah, I mean that was really exciting, right? Um, and memorable, you can tell. It was a very big deal that involved, uh, you know, many people in the world watching in and and wanting to see the ancient rituals and wanting to be a spectator uh, regarding that romantic moment. Well, this uh, this would be even more pregnant with meaning in the minds and in the hearts of Jesus's audience because. An Old Testament motif for the arrival of the Messiah, for the day of the Lord, for the great victory celebration was a wedding, a great wedding. Isaiah talked about this a lot. In the intertestamental literature, that is the literature that was written um, between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament canon, was rich in that wedding language that when the Messiah finally came and when justice was restored to the world, we would all celebrate with great food and too much wine. It is no surprise, therefore, that Jesus inaugurates his public miracle ministry with a miraculous supplying of wine at a wedding. It's all very deliberate. Well, Jesus now returns to that theme, not in the making of miracle wine, but in the telling of a great story, a very memorable story. And he is trying to set the stage that this is the event of the century. The king is inviting you to celebrate with his only beloved son at this royal wedding. Well, that's the announcement. And then we have the audience, and this is where things get dicey. This is from verses 2 through 7, because there are several rounds of invitations that are sent to various audiences. The first audience gets two invitations, but I want you to notice how uh, how generous the king is with his invitations. He invites everybody, eventually, to this feast. And there, there is something in that of God desires all to be saved sort of thing. You know. Well, round one is verse two. He sends out this invitation and nobody responds. Well, he's persistent. So there's a round two of invitations in verses four and seven. Um, he sends the servants out to remind everybody, remember you had to sign the card, sign the RSVP card, say if you wanted the steak or the chicken cordon bleu. You never, you never responded, and that's rude. And then people started doing mundane things in order to ignore the royal wedding. They wanted to farm. Somebody was really interested in his business. And then some people were not just uh, engaged in mundane alternatives. They became very violent. Um, they didn't want to be invited to a party. And they didn't even want people visiting them to remind them. And so they killed the people that they regarded uh, as, as nagging. They destroyed the servants. Uh, and then we, we hear what happened to, uh, to those people who destroyed the servants. But this is, um, this is a symbolic way of criticizing people. That's what Jesus is doing. He's offering a criticism of Israel's pathological behavior in their history. He essentially is saying this, God is pursuing you. God has pursued you since day one. And you say no a lot. Like you're really, really good at spurning all of heaven's romantic advances. This is just what you do. I mean, you do it in the garden where you have your protectorate, and you say, we don't want your protectorate. No, thank you. I'd, I'd rather eat fruit that births hell in my body than listen to you. And, and then after that, he, um, you know, he, he still stays with the human race, and he in, in 
encourage us to be fruitful and multiply even within a fallen realm. And then um, brothers can't live together because they're competitive. And so murder is introduced, saying we don't want to follow the implicit rules you've written on the heart. We say no. And then later, when God says, well, fine, I won't keep those rules implicit on the heart. I'll make them explicit in, in like, lists. I'm going to give you lists of, of how not to destroy yourselves. Just do the list, okay? Here's the list. I'll write it on stone so you have it. It's a permanent record. And I want you to pay attention so that you don't engage in endless self-sabotage under Moses. That's what he gave the people, the law. And then we said, well, it's, it's, um, it's too demanding, and we don't want to do that. We want to have our own way. And then later, he gave us little rulers called judges, and the judges were supposed to oversee pockets of people. Uh, and there, and, and, the, and the, uh, the judges didn't have the authority of a prince or a king, and we didn't like that. We, we thought no other nation is ruled by these little judges, so we don't like your authority structure, and so we reject it. And God says, fine, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. But then we didn't like the kings either. And we thought, now the kings are too power hungry and they're making our lives difficult, so we don't like them. And God says, fine, I'll give you prophets. I'm going to send you these people, these hot-headed lawyer types who come amongst you and accuse you of things so that you shape up. And we're like, yeah, we don't like the angry prophets. And he says, fine, I'll send you really nice prophets like Zephaniah, you know, who writes about like sheep and dogs and like puppies and things. And like, he's nicer. I'll send you nicer prophets. We don't like them either. And so we say no a lot. Like we say no all the time. We spurn the advances. We spurn the advances of heaven. It's the one predictable, predictable element of the human condition is we say no. And that no culminates at the cross. That is the crescendo of the grisly human condition where we say no with spikes. Like we'll kill you to say no. We will take you, God, out of the world. We will commit deicide to get rid of you and to shut you up forever so that we can run away and do our own thing even if it kills us and gives birth to hell in the world. Well, that is Jesus' accusing word regarding these people who have spurned the invitation. Uh, and uh, by the way, this is not some sort of anti-Jewish sentiment. Remember, uh, Israel is not the exception. Israel is the microcosm of the human condition. Right? We are all Israel. This is what we do. I mean, haven't you ever done this? Aren't you like them, hell-bent on self-destruction, resolutely defying every source of wisdom? You've never had a Lady Gaga bad romance? You know, nothing like that? Uh, you've never said something to your child that you swore you would never say? Ever acted like your parent that you swore you would be different from? Right. And we've all been there. We've, we've, uh, we've acted illogically. It was funny, I have a, um, a, a friendship with an amazing psychoanalyst. He, he always has uh, trouble uh, with um, engineers, and it's not a slam on engineers. I love them. We have bridges. I'm grateful. Um, but so he said, I always have trouble with engineers because they say, you know, you want to talk about feelings, and feelings are not logical, and I want to talk about logic and not feelings. And, and so my psychoanalyst finally broke with one of them one day and said, fine, you want to talk about logic? Why are you here with me? You're here with me because you cheated on your spouse numerous times and it, you ended up abandoning your family. That doesn't sound very logical to me and it doesn't sound like logic put you in this place or put you in my chair. So now can we talk about feelings? So good. The point is that we are driven, driven by all sorts of compulsive uh, components of our condition. 
that, uh, that create in us a bifurcated self in such a way that we simply say no to what is right, good, and true, and we defy logic and wisdom. Um, but yet the king uh, will not be uh, put out, and he will not have an empty party. He does something unconventional. This is the round three of invitations is in verse eight. I invite you to follow along. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So nobody from the original group showed up. But then he fills a hall with street people. The word road is used twice, right? The people that are, uh, that are you know, in the marketplace are living on the streets. And what's fascinating, at least to me, the phrase, uh, the good and the bad, or the bad and the good. He's not so interested in their moral quality. He just wants people, regardless of their histories, regardless of what they've done and who they are. He invites them, and they all show up. Now, I find that phraseology, the bad and the good, fascinating given uh, how God's presence is often understood or communicated in places like the Psalms. Psalm 24, for example, where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, whatever this group is, they lack clean hands and a pure heart. But this is the, the fascinating misfit crew that the king has gathered together, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the clean and the filthy. That's the audience. Those are the people God wanted. And then we have the attire, the attire. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Well, and then it didn't end well, you know. Um, well, uh, people have asked a lot of questions. Who is this man? Why doesn't he have a wedding garment? What does the wedding garment mean? Here's the truth. We don't have all the answers because Jesus, in speaking parables, didn't always explain every element of the parable or the allegory. But we do know a few things from Old Testament scripture uh, and from Jesus' other teachings which cast light upon these images. First of all, we know within the first century it was very customary for wealthy hosts to provide garments to their guests. So when a guest approached uh, a wedding hall, they were often given a garment to wear. Uh, we do the same thing, by the way. If you ever go into a fancy restaurant and you're underdressed, I may have done that once or five times. And if you give the maitre d' like $5 or $20, he will give you a jacket and a paisley tie to wear so that you sort of fit in with the rest of the group. Um, well, one man evidently refused uh, what was uh, very likely a, uh, a customary gesture. He refused the wedding uh, garb. And what of this wedding crasher? Why did he get kicked out of the party? What is this about? And what does the clothing symbolize here? Well, some people, I think, have errantly concluded that the wedding clothes equal inherent virtue. The problem with that, of course, is that the only people in the feast were the bad and the good. So there were people there who, were, who did not have a great deal of virtue, and yet they were still present. So it can't mean that. No, instead, clothing is, um, is very often used in the New Testament to symbolize one of two things. It either means redemption or regeneration. And if you don't know what those words mean, I'll explain them. Redemption, in short, means the forgiveness of sins. Regeneration means the renovating work of the Spirit to create in you a new you. 
a new you that is more in line with your created purpose and intent. Well, new clothing is often a sign of redemption. We see it in the Adam and Eve epic, right? So Adam and Eve, when they uh, are feeling guilty about consuming the dark sacramental fruit of the tree, what do they do? They sew fig leaves together and clothe themselves. But at the end of the narrative, after they're kicked out of paradise, what does God do? Replace their fig leaf camouflage with the skins of a sacrificed animal. He clothes them with the first death in Eden, which is a symbol of sacrifice and a symbol of mercy that is traced out in the Old Testament. But it's also there in the book of Revelation. So I skipped from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Revelation 7, the apostle John sees a great horde of people before the throne and the Lamb, and he asks about these people, and he was told by an angelic presence, these are the people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb meaning these are people who have been forgiven and purified by the sacrifice of Christ. Well, St. Paul portrayed Jesus Christ himself as a wardrobe. Did you know that? Likens Jesus to a pair of pants and a shirt. He likens Jesus Christ to clothing that you put on. And he said, very apropos of this evening, all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Images of redemption, of forgiveness of sins, of cleansing, of renewal. But new clothing is also a, an image of regeneration. We read that from our lesson in the Colossians tonight, where St. Paul invites us to put on, clothing lingo, put on various virtues that match the virtues of Jesus Christ, and to put off that which does not. So it could be redemption, it could be regeneration, but either way, this is the point. In the New Testament, clothing is often a metaphor for the work of Christ, and the work of Christ as it applies to you, as it covers you, as it speaks to you. The idea is that the clothes make the man, that when God sees the clothes of the righteousness of Christ on you, well, that's what he sees, righteousness. That's what clothing means. And so we have somebody who is in this crowd who has rejected and spurned that garment. Well, the problem is the way into the kingdom of God, the way into the wedding banquet, the way to stand with credibility in the day of the Lord is to be clothed by the king. You need the king's clothes. You need to be attired in Christ, adorned with grace. It's the only way to stand. And this is the point, I think. We come to God on God's terms, not ours. We do not come to God holding our virtues as trophies or um, clinging to our many, many identity markers, which is the idolatry of our times. Everybody is into personal identity as that identity bifurcates within the individual self until you are nothing but uh, a collection of hyphenated descriptors. It's not interesting. And certainly not what makes you stand in God's presence. What makes you stand, what makes you safe, what makes you welcome is the gifted righteousness of heaven. Is the clothing of the king. So tonight, what are we doing? We are actually enacting the latter portion of this parable. We are street people or parking lot people. We are people who are gathering together the good and the bad. And by the way, the good and the bad lives within each of us. But we are people who have been invited, pursued by the King of Kings. And by his effective grace, we have accepted that invitation. And we gather today for a banquet, right? We're gathering here for a sampling of a sacred meal, echoing what the New Testament calls the marriage supper 
of the Lamb. And my invitation is that we learn to judge each other by our clothing. Because whether we see it or not, fully realize it or not, each of us tonight is wearing a robe right now. A robe that was freely given to us, a robe that identifies us as belonging to God. It is the clothing of redemption, of indiscriminate love, of a baptismal identity that is fresh and beautiful, of being claimed by heaven. And this is a big, bulky robe, and it covers everything that we are. It covers us entirely. Our wedding attire, given to us by God, covers our clothes, whether they come from Walmart or Dolce. It covers our scar tissue, our wrinkles, our beer bellies, our empty wallets, and our physical impairments. It covers our tattered parenting and our romantic missteps. It covers our weight gain, our anorexia, and our bulimia. It covers over our uncharitable and incautiously articulated opinions. It covers over our collars, whether they are white or blue. It covers over our credentials, our degrees, even our academic gowns with their sewn-in felt patches. As an aside, we have today gathered here both college administrators as well as faculty, and faculty with different interests and sometimes different and opposed academic goals. But your administrativeness and your faculty-ness are not your principal identity markers in this place. Not at grace. Here, you are simply brother and sister in the royal house of heaven. <laughs> Incidentally, this is why I normally wear vestments in church. It's not to show my superiority to you, because if you know me well enough, you know that that would be a joke. Uh, it's not my superiority. It's a reminder of the wedding garment. It's a reminder that for you, I am not principally Ethan. Ethan, with all of his problems, health issues, hang-ups, idiosyncrasies, and superior tastes in music. <laughs> instead, instead, I'm simply your minister, and it is my job to give you Jesus Christ week after week. Well, this is the point, friends. Our robe, that is the work of Christ for us, hides us, hides the good and the bad, the vice and the virtue, and presents only Christ to God. When we struggle with each other, we need to remember that the other person is wearing a matching outfit. And the most significant thing about that person is that matching outfit. Um, they wear the robe of Christ. Whether we agree with them or not, are friends with them or not, they wear the robe of Christ. And therefore, their primary identity is beloved, cherished, honored, and washed, loved and adored by heaven. One of you uh, once told me this little tip regarding reconciliation between sparring parties, and it was this. Before anything, assume friendship. Before anything, assume friendship. That is, don't play chess in your brain before you have a difficult conversation with somebody. Well, if they say this, then I'm going to say this. If they try this tactic, I'm going to respond this way. There's no need to be Machiavellian. That's what the world does. Instead, assume friendship, assume love, assume camaraderie right from the start, and you'll deal with that person very differently. You know, our current society is brittle, it is divisive, and it is overly invested in self-identification to the point of encouraging violence between tribes. It's the result of idolatry. It is, regardless of ideology, narcissistic and isolationistic. 
but we have an alternative narrative. What an overused phrase. But an alternative narrative to the narrative of the world. And it's this. We judge each other by our clothing, which is the regal attire of Jesus Christ. After all, it is what is on the outside that counts. And what is on the outside is the robe of righteousness. Now, if you need a picture of this truth tonight and find my uh, conceptions and my words to be a little heady, uh, we are going to look no further than Katie Verboice, because Katie Verboice will be giving the most important sermon this evening. Katie is preaching the gospel to us today, because she will be wearing a white robe, which reminds us that she is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. As she is baptized, note she does not baptize herself, give herself credibility. No, she receives a gift from outside herself, a washing from outside herself. And as she is washed, she reminds us that there is a God, a God who bore a Judean face, who came among us to love us as we are, not as we should be. None of us are as we should be. And to give his life away for us in that place to make us clean, and to make us belong forever. And so in this sacrament, and in what's about to happen to Katie, Jesus Christ is shouting at all of us. He wants us to pay attention to something, and he wants to say something to you, something like this. You wear my clothes, you belong to my family, you are mine, and I am yours, and so welcome home. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could.